Ladies, good chance. You can do it. Be a part of it. Uh, let's stand up. Um, this sermon is kind of heavy, uh, I think. So what I'd like you to do is to stretch, if you've used your deodorant today, stretch up, okay? Oh, oh, doesn't it feel good to stretch? You know we don't do that enough in the morning. Get up on your toes if you can, you know, so. Oh, move your arms around a little bit, okay? Uh, everybody turn this way and rub the person's back, their shoulders, rub their shoulders, okay? Now we're not going to do it the other way. We only get only one person can. <laughs> No, turn the other way and go ahead and rub their back, rub their shoulders. Ah, yeah. Okay, you may be seated. This sermon's heavy and it's very, very long, so uh, buckle up. No, it's not going to be that long. This is going to be the last in this series on the soul, and there is so much we could have covered, uh, but the basic gist is that the soul is very, very needy. It needs God, it needs hope, it needs rest, it needs freedom. Uh, it also needs depth, which we didn't talk about. It needs gratitude, which we didn't talk about. There's just so many needs. But today I want to do a little different track on the dark night of the soul. Listen to these psalms. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 31 talks about the anguish of my soul as well. I am in distress. My eyes grow weak and weary. My soul and body with grief. Even the body's affected. Psalm 42, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? If you were to ask people who do not believe in God why they do not believe in God, the number one answer given is suffering. Why does God allow things? Why, why does God allow uh, children to die? Why did God allow my husband to abandon me? Why did God allow those natural disasters that kill and devastate people? Why does He allow terrorism? If you ask people who do believe in God when they grew most spiritually, number one answer, same thing, suffering. So it's those hard times that cause some people to abandon God, and it's those hard times that cause other people to grow in God. Someone said no one ever found the Lord on the day he won the lottery. That's true. Faith is more likely to come when you lose your job. Now, this is Memorial Day weekend, as we mentioned, and we remember the loss of some who have suffered for our country, and I saw I thought it would be fitting to talk about this dark night of the soul. The phrase comes from a monk named St. John of the Cross, who lived in Spain in the 16th century. He devoted his life to reforming the church, but his attempts were heavily criticized, and he ended up in prison for it, and it was there in prison that he wrote his most famous work entitled, the dark night of the soul. And it's an account of how God works to change us, not just in the good times, but also He changes us in those dark times. And the dark night of the soul, this is very important, is not just suffering. Okay, you can be suffering without going through the dark night of the soul. It is suffering along with what feels like the abandonment and silence of God. This is what makes it dark. God, where are you? And you'll go through this time of deep dryness, God is distant, and John of the cross says it's not the soul's fault. Now, it's possible for you to grow cold toward God or you know, because you cling to sin or maybe you prefer an idol or maybe you're just simply lazy, but that's not the dark night. The dark night of the soul is God-initiated. And we'll see in this Psalm 88 that God seems to be distant. He's nowhere to be found. Some say that this psalm is the saddest, darkest prayer in the Bible. There is no hope expressed in this psalm. 
The word darkness appears three times, and in the Hebrew, the word darkness is the last word of this psalm. The prayer ends in darkness, and you'll notice that he blames God for it. Some people have wondered why this is even in the Bible, because it is so hopeless. It seems almost blasphemous the way he accuses God and rails out at him. He says some things that really aren't true. He's mad and he's hurt. It reminds me of a man whose baby son was born and then died after 16 hours of life. And after losing his son, this man said, if I ever went to church and saw God, I'd punch him in the face. That's Psalm 88. So what good can this psalm do for us? I think if we get into it, we'll see. It can do us a lot of good. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your eye, ear to my cry. My soul is full of trouble and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest steps. Notice you. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Down verse 13. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I've suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken me from friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. God, you've done this. You've taken my friend and neighbor. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. And darkness is my closest friend. This is not a hallmark ending. What's it teaching us? Well, for one thing, for sure, darkness is real. One of the most important lessons of this psalm and one of the most important lessons of life is the inevitability of pain and suffering and the unfairness and excruciating part of it. This man is inundated both with inner and outer darkness. He has problems going on outwardly. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we do know, apparently, he's experiencing relational loss. In verse 8, he says, you've taken from me my closest friends. Verse 18, you've taken my friend and neighbor, and he blames God. He says, God, you're the one that ripped them out of my hands. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a church conflict. Maybe it's a death. Maybe he's lost a child. Maybe it's a miscarriage or, or the pain of rejection. The second part of verse 8 says, you have made me repulsive to them. One of the deepest hurts I know for me is when people don't like me. Let me tell you a secret about ministers. We like to be liked. And that's a bummer because not everyone is going to like us. In fact, there's times I don't even like me. But you can see it on some people's faces and in the body language and in the avoidance. There's the disgust and revulsion. They just don't like it. I remember one guy, especially in one of my first churches, I just loved this guy and he couldn't stand me. It's just awful. So this guy's suffering relationally. Maybe uh, he's a young person being bullied. He's also suffering physically, verse 3 and 4 and 5, my life draws near the grave, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit, I'm set apart with a debt like the slain who lie in the grave. He's lost relationships, it looks here like he's in bad health. Uh, maybe it's both physical and mental health. He, he really sounds a lot like Job. But that's not the worst. The worst is what John the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, 
God has turned on him. At least it seems that way. God has done these things. And here's a man who trusts in God as a Savior. He's a man of faith. He starts out by saying, Lord, you are God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Verse 9, he says, I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. He prays and prays and prays. He trusts God. He knows God is a Savior and still nothing. There's a myth and a lie that many American Christians buy into. And that lie is that if I do right and if I live well, if I'm a good Christian, bad things should not happen to me. That is a myth and a lie. This psalm tells us You can do everything right. You can live a good life. You can be a good person. You can pray and pray and pray like this person, calling out to God, believing in God, trusting in God, and still be plunged into awful darkness. I don't like that. And you probably don't either. But it helps. Because it shatters the naivety of modern Christians who bought into this myth that somehow we are exempt, or at least we ought to be exempt from darkness and suffering. Some would call it karma. Karma essentially says, I get what I deserve. And if I'm good, I should deserve good things. Well, there's a reason Christians don't believe in karma, because it's wrong. Yes, the Bible says God works everything out for good for those who love Him. And yes, God has purposes behind everything. But you may go through your whole life and never know what that purpose is. Job was never told why he suffered so much. Never told. And if we don't grasp this first thing... If we buy into the myth that good people should not experience darkness, and if you believe in some form of karma, when you do encounter the darkness in your life, and you will, you will always be weeping about two things instead of one. You'll be weeping about the thing that makes you weep, and then you'll be weeping about the fact that you're weeping. So this psalm helps us to know even good, godly people will go through the darkness. Second lesson. Darkness is one of the best places to see God's grace. How so? I don't see a lot of grace in here. In fact, if you read this psalm, it's more of an accusation than it is a prayer. God, you don't remember me, verse 5. God, you don't care about me. God, you put me in the lowest pit, verse 6. You put your wrath on me, verse 7. You've overwhelmed me with waves of trouble, in verse 7. God, you've taken from me my closest friends, in verse 8. You've made me repulsive to them. God, you don't answer prayer, in verse 9. You reject me, verse 14. You hide your presence from me, in verse 14. God, you've tormented me and tortured me from childhood, verse 15. God, you've taken my loved ones from me, verse 18, he's mad, he's hurting, and it's God's fault. Many people think he's blaspheming. Verse 15, on to the end, he says, from my youth, I've been afflicted and close to death. In other words, God, you've never been there for me. You've never been good to me, which is just not true. Well, how does it show God's grace? The very fact that this prayer is in the Bible and other prayers like it shows us that God gets it. He understands how we feel and speak when we are desperate, and He allows it. God puts this intemperate, angry, over-the-top, blasphemous rant in the Holy Scriptures. He put it there to let us know that He knows how we speak and feel when we're hurting, when our feelings so overwhelm us that we say desperate things and incorrect things and even heretical things. Have you ever said anything in anger that you normally would not? God knows that. God has heard me swear at him. It's not right. It's not a good habit. But God is saying, it's safe to pray with me like this. 
It's safe to pour out your feelings because I am still God despite the way you talk or feel. So God is saying, I'm not your God just because you can put on a happy face every Sunday morning. I'm not your God because you say all the right things. I'm not your God because you do all the right things. I'm not your God because you can hold it together. I'm just your God, period. And I am big enough and strong enough to take it. It is safe to pour out your heart to me. Psalm 88 is a sign of His grace, His patience and understanding, the very fact that this is in Scripture. Now, there's two terms you should know that ancient Christians have uh, given to us, consolation and desolation. Consolation is the felt presence of God, and desolation is the felt absence of God. Consolation is that period in your life when you're just on cloud nine, maybe when you first become a Christian or you join a church and everything seems new and everything's fresh. Every time you read the Bible, you just feel like God is speaking. Every time you pray, you feel His love and presence. Every time you sing, it, it, it's meaningful. You sneeze and someone says, God bless you. And yeah, yeah, you're excited. Worship at church is just meaningful. It's kind of like a young couple newly in love. It could be the most obnoxious time in your Christian life as well. But it's just over the top and everything's wonderful, but then comes a desolation. Now you don't see God working. This is when you're praying and praying and praying and no answers. And you're reading and reading and worshiping and getting nothing out of it. And you come to church and it's completely bone dry. These are the desert times. These are the times when some people start church hopping. Well, it must be the church. It must be the preacher. The church is dead. No, not necessarily. It might be God. He's initiated the dark night of the soul. The ancient writers pointed out an arrogant belief in the minds of immature believers, and it is that consolation and desolation are up to me. It's about what I'm doing. So if I'm experiencing the felt presence of God and the consolation, I must be doing something right. And if I'm experiencing desolation, the felt absence of God, I must be doing something wrong. I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading enough. I don't have enough faith. Or the church is doing something wrong. And the ancients said... What if consolation and desolation isn't so much about what you are doing, but it's more about what God is doing? What if consolation and desolation are both intentional moves of God in your life where He just withdraws from you? Here's an old illustration of husband and wife sitting in the front seat of the car. Now, this is when they had bench seats. Some of you are old enough to remember bench seats. And uh, when they were dating, she used to sit right next to him. Those were the good old days, I'll tell you. And uh, later in marriage, of course, she's sitting over by the door and she says, you know, when we were dating, we used to sit next to each other and you'd have your arm around me and I'd lay my head on your shoulder and I felt so loved. And the husband replied, well, who moved? And in the dark night of the soul, it is God who moves. Why? Why would God go silent and allow this darkness? Number three, darkness is where God can turn you into a person of great faith. You can't read this without thinking about Job. And in the book of Job, it begins with Satan taunting God. God shows Satan, his righteous servant Job, and says, look at Job and see how he serves me, Satan. And Satan says to God in reply, does Job serve God for nothing? In other words, Job serves you, God, because you bless him. You're so good to him. And Satan's not just pointing to Job when he does it. He is pointing to every one of us, every believer. He's pointing to you. He's pointing to me. He's saying to God, 
Look at your so-called devoted followers at Mount Pulaski Christian Church. They're sitting there in church, but they're not really there to serve you. They're really not loving you. They're only serving you because it pays. They're only doing all this stuff because they think if they do, you'll answer their prayers and you'll give them some peace and comfort and you'll hedge in their lives and you'll give them good children and not let anything bad to happen and then you'll take them off to heaven. They're worshiping you, God, because they are self-centered. And that's what Satan is saying. By the way, Satan's name means accuser. He's accusing you before God. And Satan says, I can prove it. Plunge them into darkness. Don't answer their prayers. Don't give them any sense of your presence. Take away all their earthly comforts. Take away their children, God. Set it up so that serving you and worshiping you and praying to you pays off absolutely nothing, and then you'll see, God, they'll curse you, they'll turn away from you, they'll reject you, because they're not really servants, they're mercenaries. That's the accuser. So God and Satan enter into a wager. God says, okay, bet's on, let's see. Job loses all his children. Can you imagine that? All of them. He loses all his possessions. Doesn't know why. But he was a wealthy man, loses everything. Then he loses his health, and he's in excruciating pain. And eventually his wife even turns on him and says, curse God and die. His friends come and they say, well, you must have done some sin, something wrong, because God would never do this to a righteous man. They believed in karma. And Satan says, he'll never make it. God, he will curse you. He will turn from you. So you come to church today, but when times get tough, when God is not answering your prayers, and when things aren't going the way you want them to do, what are you going to do? Do you prove Satan's accusations correct? Because when you go through this desolation, you have a choice, and it is a question really from God himself, and it goes like this. Now we'll see whether you're in this relationship to serve me as God or to serve yourself. Why are you worshiping me? See, there's nothing like the dark night of the soul to show what's really in your heart. So God gives you consolation to show you who he is. He gives you blessings and, and good things to show that he is a good God. But God gives you desolation to show who you are. It's a mirror to your soul. And when you're confronted by that darkness and you hang on, it will change you and it will make your faith great. We've heard a lot about make America great again in the last year. What makes America great? Some would say it's the money, it's the power, it's the military. Let me suggest to you that what makes America great is when America gets through those hard times. World War II made America great. The easy times make America weak. And this psalm is a psalm of darkness. It looks bad. It sounds bad. It looks like this guy is losing it. He's yelling at God and screaming and complaining. He's bitter. But you notice, he's doing all this bitterness and complaining still to God. It is a prayer. Everything he does in this psalm is before God. Even at the very end when he says, darkness is my only friend, he's still saying it to God, even though he's getting nothing out of this. So do you know what that means? It means Satan lost. The bet. Satan was wrong about Job. Job continued to serve God, even though he was bitter and complained about it. He, he still uh, was his servant. And Satan is wrong about you. Even if you're getting nothing out of it and you're staying with God, if you do that in your darkness, you've defeated Satan. And if you can say through your deepest pain that God is enough like Job, 
Like Job who said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. If you can say that in your darkness, Satan loses. And you display great faith. One more teaching. Psalm 88 teaches us that darkness is a shadow. And shadows are always temporary. Part of the sting of darkness is feeling like it's never going to get better, that this is the way it's always going to be. But the darkness is not permanent. It will not last. The psalmist here is describing himself, obviously, and he's describing each one of you who goes through a dark night, but he's also describing one other specific person. I want you to listen to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 of his book because it sounds an awfully lot like Psalm 88. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their face, hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Stricken by who? By God. Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Who's he describing? Jesus. And Psalm 88 sounds a lot like this. It looks to Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took the absolute darkness. He drank the cup of God's wrath. God afflicted him. God abandoned him. And because God did that, the darkness we experience now is only a shadow. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, death and darkness have been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O darkness, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God gives us the victory over death and darkness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse is a pastor in Philadelphia. He tells this story about his wife's death. He and his family were driving to, the mother's, to the, their mother's funeral. The youngest child was five years old. And so he no longer has a wife, his kids no longer have a mother, and a big truck passed by their cars. They headed to the funeral, and because of the position of the sun, when the truck went by, this enormous shadow came over the car, and the car was filled with darkness, and then the car passed through the shadow back into the light. And Barnhouse turned around to his kids and said, you see that truck? Would you rather be hit by that truck or by the shadow of that truck? The youngest child said, well, the shadow. And dad replied, it's going to be okay, kids. It's going to be all right because Jesus was hit by the truck so that your mother only has to go through the shadow. Psalm 23 is the most read psalm at all funerals. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So Psalm 88 is Jesus. He comes under the wrath of God. He was repulsive to his peers. And because of Jesus, the darkness we endure is just a shadow. And we're going to remember that darkness during communion right now. These emblems remind us of the rejection and the loss and the pain of the cross and the death so that the darkness is conquered and Satan loses once again. Let's pray. Lord, you experienced the deepest darkness. We know that. It's a darkness that none of us ever has or ever will experience. And we thank you that our darkness is a shadow. 
It's real, but it does not last. And we know that although darkness may be present now and the night is strong now, we know that light comes in the morning. A new day is coming. We know that resurrection is real. So thank you for these emblems and what they mean to us and speak to us as they remind us of the darkness of Jesus that gives us victory. Amen.